our lives begin with a cry. Now, I know many of us in this room don't remember the moment when we first came into this world, but for those of us who have had children, we know that the first sound a baby makes when they leave the protection of their mother and are brought out into the light in a very violent act is a cry. And I think that should tell us something about the nature of this life, the nature of humanity. To cry is to be human. It's a natural expression of pain, an expression of fear or sorrow as we navigate life in this broken and fallen world. I think we also know that our tears don't stop at birth because we still experience suffering and pain even today. Just ask Pastor Jeff or Pastor Aaron about their experiences lately with Carolina basketball. And you (laughs) may find them shedding some tears. As Christians, though, we do have a unique ability to express our pain in the midst of suffering in a different way. Not simply as a physical response, but as a spiritual response, an expression of hope in the midst of that suffering. We can lament. To cry may be human, but to lament is singularly Christian. There's a pastor who writes a lot about lamenting. His name is Mark Vraugup, and he defines the act of lament in this way. It's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Lament allows us to turn toward God when we are tempted to run from him. In our text today, we will once again see Jesus suffering. In fact, the suffering that we will witness today through the spirit-guided testimony of Matthew is the worst suffering that any being has experienced in the history of the world. What's happening here is more than crucifixion. And crucifixion by itself is pretty terrible. But what we'll also see is Jesus, in the midst of this incomparable suffering, turning toward the Father. We will see a cry of pain, but also remarkably, a cry of trust, a cry of lament as Jesus is crucified. This response of Jesus in the hardest possible moment of his earthly life is meant to be both an encouragement to us and a guide as the people of God. We are to learn from Jesus about how to glorify God in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our suffering through lament. But more than that, the very action that brings about Jesus' lament is the action that allows us to lament. It's the action of Jesus here in this text that allows us to grieve with hope, to trust in the midst of suffering, knowing that one day there will come a day when we will be freed from the brokenness in this world as we will be made new in Christ. Because in heaven, my friends, there will be no more crying. There will be no more tears, just joy forevermore. Here's the main point that we'll see from our text in Matthew 27 today. The response of Jesus to his suffering provides both an example and a foundation for our response to suffering. 
The response of Jesus to his suffering provides both an example and a foundation for us as we respond to suffering. So this morning, let's behold our glorious Jesus in his most difficult moment and allow him to teach us how to deal with our own suffering for the glory of God. Matthew 27, we're going to begin in verse 32, reading all the way down to verse 50. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry the cross of Jesus. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself? If you are the son of God, come on down from the cross. And so also the chief priests of the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The suffering of Jesus in our text has increased dramatically today. And let's, as a people for a moment, just consider all that Jesus is suffering, all that he is enduring for our sake. Because I believe the weight of his suffering should serve to increase the awe we feel at his response Remember, Jesus has already been the victim of injustice, accused of blasphemy just because he told the truth. He's accused of insurrection by jealous men who want him dead. And rather than fulfilling his role as governor and protecting an innocent man, Pilate, as we saw last week, betrays Jesus, turns him over to these people to be crucified. And the process of crucifixion begins with a beating, a scourging. We saw that earlier in verse 26. Scourging was the practice of beating a person sentenced to crucifixion to the point of death with a piece of leather that had bone or metal woven into it. And the purpose was to, to weaken the criminal so that they wouldn't last long upon the cross. In fact, it was common for criminals to die from just the beating itself as the fragments attached to the whip tore into their bodies. Jesus, though, did not die from this beating, but he was weak, so weak that he could not carry the part of the cross that was his responsibility. 
And so, a guy named Simon is forced to help him in verse 32 of our text. And as an aside, isn't it interesting that this man's name is Simon? It's almost as if the Spirit is reminding us that another Simon should have been there to carry the weight of this burden for Jesus, but he's not. And so Simon of Cyrene is chosen to help Jesus. And then we arrive at the moment of the crucifixion itself. And crucifixion was a truly horrific punishment. It was the custom of cultures throughout history to publicly shame, humiliate those who resisted the authorities, who displayed behaviors that they wanted to discourage. Sometimes people would be impaled on sticks so their bodies would be hung in prominent places as a reminder. Sometimes it was just part of the body, like a head. But the Carthaginians and the Romans after them heightened this practice by including the actual process of dying as a part of the warning. Those who were crucified weren't killed somewhere else and, this, and then displayed. Their death was part of the warning. Sometimes people were just secured to the cross by a rope in a way that would lead to their death by suffocation. That kind of death could take hours as their arms would be suspended above their heads, cutting off their airflow. And at other times, they were nailed to a cross, as in the case of Jesus. And they were nailed in such a way that the additional loss of blood would hurry their death. But what's interesting about Matthew's account of the death of Jesus is he doesn't spend a great deal of time recounting the physical realities of Christ's suffering. The crucifixion is just one line in this account. He does spend a lot of time, though, forcing us to consider the shame that Jesus endured for us. And shame was a central part of the design of crucifixion. Everything happening to Jesus here is meant to bring upon him shame. He was taken outside of the city. A picture of Jerusalem and the people of God rejecting their savior. He was hung on a tree, which according to Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 is a picture of being cursed by God. He was likely naked although he may have been allowed to wear a loincloth because he was Jewish. He was mocked, ridiculed by the very ones he was seeking to save. And we touched a bit on the, part, uh, on the mocking part last week. Before Jesus was crucified, the soldiers dressed him up like a king right after they had beaten him to the point of death. They put a scarlet robe on him, crowned him with a crown of thorns. They bowed before him, mocking him. Hail King Jesus, this King of the Jews. And now as Jesus hangs on the cross, he's mocked once again. The accusation, it's nailed to the cross, is meant to be a statement of shame. Oh yeah, here's your King, King Jesus. Look at him now. He's hung between two robbers, even as soldiers divide up his garments and tease him with sour wine. The people who pass by wag their heads at them, at him saying in verse 40, you who said you could destroy the temple in three days and build it back up again, you can't even save yourself. What kind of power do you really have? Now that's not exactly what Jesus said, but I don't think they're concerned with quoting him accurately here. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders join in. Look again at verses 42 to 43. He's supposed to be a savior. He can't even save himself. 
He's supposed to be a king. Let him come down. If he's our king, come down right now and then we'll believe you. Oh, he's supposed to be the son of God. Let's see if God really claims him as son by helping him get off this cross. And finally, even the robbers themselves who are crucified with Jesus join in mocking our Christ. Although we know from Luke's account, at least one of the robbers rebukes the others and eventually is saved by Jesus. But it's clear from Matthew's gospel that everyone is against Jesus. Talk about suffering. It's a lot to take in. It's overwhelming to see Jesus like this, and we're not even the ones experiencing it. I remember the first time I saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, leaving the theater two and a half hours later, exhausted, just watching it. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Jesus to endure? How did he respond? What was his response to the whole world turning their back on him? What was his response to to wearing the, the guilt, the shame that we deserved, bearing the judgment of God on our behalf? His response was a response of lament. That's how Matthew describes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know this by how Matthew embeds allusions to two different psalms throughout his recounting of the crucifixion. It's clear as we read this passage that Matthew wants to draw our attention to both Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, both of which were written by David in the midst of some of his greatest times of distress. And listen for a moment just how similar the language is in these psalms and the account of the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew 27. We'll begin in Psalm 22. I'm just going to read the first 18 verses of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and, your fa- and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, they were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast, and on you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted Within my my breast, my strength is dried up. My tongue clicks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat all over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, 
they cast lots. And then look at Psalm 69, verses one to eight, where David writes, save me, O God, for the waters have come up on my neck. I, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm, I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim, waiting for God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done and not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let, that, let, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Do you hear the common language between Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and Matthew 27? It's clear that Matthew is asking us to consider these psalms as we read about the crucifixion of Jesus and his response to all that he is enduring. Why? In one sense, it's pretty clear that Matthew has been making an argument that Jesus is the better David. We saw that from the beginning as Jesus is the son, the true son of David. Whatever situation brought David to this point of despair, Jesus' situation was worse. Saul, enemy forces, those mocking David, they don't really compare to all that Christ is enduring in Matthew 27. And yet, in the midst of worse suffering, in every possible way, Jesus remains faithful. He turns to God in trust, even though the night seems very dark. Look at verse 46 again. The cry of Jesus in, in verse 46 is a complicated yet clear cry. It's a, a very familiar declaration to many of us. Christ is enduring all of the suffering, physical, emotional. He's bearing the weight of our guilt and the judgment of God. And he cries out with a loud voice, Allah, Allah, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the crowds misunderstand him. There must be a, a similarity between Eli, Eli, and the name Elijah because they believe he is calling down Elijah to save him. But Jesus was doing something else. Yes, this cry was reflective of what he was bearing, the weight of our sins and the wrath of God. But it was also a remarkable cry of trust as Jesus, like David, turns to God even as he's bearing the weight of his judgment. What a wonderful, mysterious expression of trust in his Father by Jesus in the worst of circumstances. Even though he was bearing his wrath, he remained faithful and turned to him in trust. But there's another way that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the greater David. Yes, David can serve us as an example to us of how to hope in the midst of suffering as an older brother in our faith, but it is clear that Jesus is greater because he doesn't just hope in the Father. He does hope in the Father. But it's also Jesus who secures our hope. It's not just that Jesus himself 
hopes in the suffering. It's that his suffering builds the foundation for Christian hope. His cause of lament is what allows us to lament. Think for a moment about the prayer that David prays in Psalm 69 again. Verses 6 to 8. He says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Basically, he's claiming the promises of God. God, you've promised these things to me. You've promised these things to your people. Would you show yourself faithful through me? Because it's for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. It's for your sake that I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. And if we think about the immediate aftermath of what David is praying here, God did show his faithfulness through David. He did rescue him and allow him to ascend the throne of Israel just as he promised. But there were other moments in the life of David where David did not display a faithfulness that allowed the faithfulness of God to be displayed through him. You see, David says, I know there are things in my life that have not honored you. And so I'm asking you to to cover those. I've put those before you. I don't think this is one of those moments, but I know those are there. Jesus never prayed that prayer because there was nothing in his life that ever dishonored the Father. He was always perfectly faithful to the Father. And because of that, he is a greater David. David did bring shame on his people on occasion through his failures. While he was a great king, he was also flawed. But in Jesus, friends, we will never be put to shame. In fact, Our shame is taken away because Jesus has borne it all on himself. Praise be to God. And if you want to talk about the faithfulness of God being displayed, there's never been a moment in the history of the world where we have seen more of the glory of God than on the cross. Think about all that we see about the nature of God just in the crucifixion moment. Yes, we see the righteousness and holiness of God on display as he brings judgment upon Jesus for us, as he pours out his wrath upon him. But we also see his covenant faithfulness, the fulfillment of all of his promises to us. We see his mercy, his grace, surprisingly his love, as he allows his son to be upon a cross that we deserved. What glory is on display on the cross. And what a gift for us, even though it's profoundly difficult to take in. Through the cross of Jesus, we see the character of God. We see the fullness of Christ. Even though they were mocking him, they do declare some truth about Jesus as he sits upon that cross. He is our king. He is our savior. He is the meeting place, the true meeting place between God and man, and he is worthy of our worship. And this leads us to consider our own response to suffering as we are in Christ. Remember our main point today from our text, the response of Jesus to his suffering provides both an example and a foundation for us and our response to suffering. 
What do we do or what should we do when we are faced with difficult moments? And why should we have confidence in the Father like Jesus did? Why should we trust? Well, I think the lesson for us today as the people of God, beyond just the awe and worship we should have of Jesus, is that in moments of great hardship, we should lament. Because we want to follow the example of Jesus and we want to express confidence in the work of God in Jesus. Now, just to be clear, because we don't often talk about lament in Baptist circles, here's what I mean. Here's, here's how I want to define what lament is. When we lament, we do four things. We turn to God. We bring our questions to God. We ask for his help and we choose to trust and your moments of difficulty, when, when suffering, the hardships of this world are at their highest, and you lament, what you are doing is you are turning to God, you're bringing your questions to him, you ask for his help, and then you choose to trust. Now, isn't this what we saw Jesus doing over the course of the last couple of chapters? In the garden, when Jesus is faced with the cup of the wrath of God, he turns to the Father in prayer and he asks him, is this the only way? If it's not, I'll gladly take another way. But when God says, when the Father reveals, yes, this is the only way, Jesus asks for his help and then he trusts. And that trust is on clear display from every moment after his prayer in the garden. He doesn't defend himself in the face of injustice. Rather, he remains silent because he knows why he is ultimately on trial. He doesn't call down the angels to eradicate his enemies. Rather, he willingly lays his life down. He doesn't treat, drink the cup of bitter wine, but he does drink the cup of God's wrath, knowing this was the only way to secure our salvation. So friends, let's follow the example of Jesus in our own times of difficulty, displaying faith and trust in the one who has saved us. And aren't there many brothers and sisters who have also been an encouragement to us to deal with times of difficulty with lament? Showing us the, the value and the benefit of approaching hardship and suffering in this way. I think about the testimony of our friend Brenda Prince, longtime member of our church whose funeral is tomorrow. She was diagnosed at a relatively young age with an aggressive form of brain cancer, cancer that took her life earlier or last week. But as far as I know, from my own interaction with her, from the testimony of her own children and her friends, she never once complained that God allowed this in her life. Now, I'm sure there were moments before the Lord where she asked the question, why me? But even in those moments, she took them to the Lord and she trusted, such that even on her deathbed, the joy of the Lord was clearly on her face. Another example of this to me was my best friend's dad, Lewis Boyd, who almost 20 years ago was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of prostate cancer and died at a young age. And he told us that in moments when he began to ask the question, why me, he would train himself to ask the question in response, why not me? Because it's just the reality of a broken and fallen world. He said, our, something's gonna get every one of our bodies if the Lord tarries. 
So why not me? Now listen, I'm gonna be sad to miss a lot of stuff in the life of my family. That's gonna make me sad, but even though I'm sad, I will not allow this cancer or the enemy to steal my joy because my joy is rooted in something else. My hope was never, never in this life. My hope was always in Christ. So what did these, what did this brother and this sister do in times of great difficulty when facing the reality of cancer and death? They lamented. They they understood the sadness and the gravity of the situation, but they did not run from God. They turned toward him, knowing he could handle their questions and knowing that he knows more than we do. They asked for his help to endure in a way that glorified him, and they trusted. And why should we trust? Why should we believe that God is a worthy place to place our hope because of, what just, because of what happens just a few pages later in our text, something we'll celebrate in two short weeks. The trust of Jesus is proven worthwhile because God did not let him stay in the grave. Rather, he raised him from the dead. God promised he would do it, and he did, securing the eternal hope that all of us cling to if we are in Christ. Friends, church, remember, whatever our suffering is, and I have no idea what many of us are walking through in this room, but whatever it is that you are suffering, that suffering is temporary. Amen. And it buckles under the weight of glory that awaits us, the joy that is ours in Jesus. It does not mean there won't be hard moments. There will be hard moments in this life. I don't want in any way minimize the difficulty of a cancer diagnosis or death or the breaking up of a home or wayward children. I just want you to know, I want you to believe that whatever it is that you're walking through in this moment, it is only for a brief time. Even if they last years or decades, church, eternity is coming. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and find encouragement. What an example to us of how to deal with suffering, but more than that, rest in his provision. Rest in the promise that because of what he did on the cross and because of what God did in raising him from the grave three days later, we have a secure hope that can never be taken away from us. We have an eternal joy in Jesus that this world will never rob us of. Allow the Christian practice of lament, guided by the word and the spirit, to take you out of despair and set you on the solid foundation that is yours in Christ if you are a child of the king. Because he will turn our mourning into dancing. Dancing? Yes. <laughs> Baptist friends. <laughs> dancing. He will turn our sorrows into joy if we let him and we should let him. Praise be to Jesus who endured the suffering of the cross so that we could have glorious hope in him. How should we respond this morning? Let me just ask you a few questions to help navigate maybe some of the ways that the Holy Spirit is leading you, leading us to respond this morning. Firstly, do you know Jesus? There is no hope in this life 
There's no hope in eternity outside of Christ. Have you ever looked at the cross and seen surprisingly the love of God on display for you as Jesus took your place and repented of your sins, believing in him to salvation so that you could be covered by his blood? If not, there's no more appropriate response to what, to what we've seen, witnessed in Matthew 27 than that. Would you give your life to him today? Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because there is salvation and no one else. We want you to have the hope that we have. Would you believe in him today? Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to encourage you in that. If you've never given your life to Christ, come. For those of us who do know Jesus, are you facing hardship in a way that shows your confidence in Christ? Again, in this life, there will be many trials. In this life, there will be hardship, suffering, and pain. How we respond to that says a lot about who we are as the people of God. Are we lamenting? When we are tempted to run from God, are we rather in faith turning toward God and entrusting our cares, entrusting our questions to him? And are we resting in his faithfulness? Because we know what awaits. And we know where our ultimate hope is placed. Again, I don't know what you walked in here with today. You may have had a really bad week. You may be walking through a very difficult season of life. Just know God's with you. And if you will turn to him, he will show you, he will reveal to you how he is working even this moment for his glory and your good. And finally, can we just celebrate the faithfulness of Christ today? When we... I mean, it is, it is overwhelming to think about what Jesus endured for us. And friends, he could have come down at any moment. He could have called it off. He could have forsaken us instead of himself being forsaken, but he didn't. He is our king. He is our savior. He is our meeting place between God and man. He is worthy of our worship. Let's celebrate him and give him praise. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Just spend a moment thinking about how to respond in faithfulness to the preaching of God's word, maybe in the questions that we've already asked or the, the movement of the spirit in your life. If you don't know Christ, come. If you do, does your response to difficulty and hardship evidence it? Are you showing remarkable faith Trust, even when it's hard. God will use it. God will use it. Often in Paul's letters, he writes about how his suffering has become a tool for the gospel. Think about this. If God can redeem the suffering of Jesus for his glory, and all of us in here benefited from it, don't you believe he can also redeem the hardship you're facing? 
for his glory and your ultimate good? Of course he can. Would you trust that and trust that to him today? And then church, we rejoice as we see the glory of God displayed upon the cross in Christ. We only know God in Jesus. He's the perfect revelation of the Father to us. Think about all that we have beheld on the cross about our God. His holiness, his righteousness, but also his grace, his mercy, and his love. Oh, he's worthy of our worship, church. Father, would you help us respond in a way that honors you today? May we be a more faithful people, more like Jesus because of our time before the word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.